Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 29th, 2011. Mm -mm -mm -mm. It's going to be a controversial Fighting for the Faith. And not for the reasons that you think. (laughs) I am hurt at work, by the way. Working on uh, next week's uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And I've been getting emails from a lot of listeners, uh, you know, nominating particular pastors. <laughs> and I want you all to know that you, those of you who've been emailing me, holy guacamole, <laughs> you picked some real bad ones. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. God's Word is true. You can trust it. And all of us you know, are striving to dig deeper into God's words and, and have that transform our thinking and our minds so that our minds and our thinking are in accord with what God has revealed about himself and what is truly true. <sighs> okay, so yeah, the, the, uh, I've got a small wave of emails you know, of nominees for the Easter sermon, worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Yep, it's, uh, yeah, you guys, <laughs> oh man. <sighs> yeah, you guys have sent me some pretty, pretty bad ones. And some of them are going to actually make the cut. I get the feeling. So I, I don't know how many sermons are going to uh, be totally reviewed next week, but uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be a mess. So, yeah, and uh, so put on your helmet, your crash helmet, uh, knee pads, uh, body armor, uh, chain mail. You're, you're going to need it all for next week. That's all I can say is, is that, yeah, it's it. Whew. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, I had hoped, you know, earlier in, in the uh, in the week to, uh, you know, to do a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith today, uh, complete with uh, a couple of sermons from Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. I have made an executive decision. I'm going to hold uh, those uh, Pastor Charmley sermons off probably until the week after next week. Uh, as uh, you know, and uh, we're going to we're going to cover a different topic. Um, the it turns out that the edition of Fighting for the Faith, that, where I reviewed Mark Driscoll's uh, Easter sermon, has uh, led to a small inundation of uh, of emails from listeners asking questions about baptism, which I, I expected that to be the case. And so, what I'm going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is I'm going to be playing a lecture 
fantastic adult catechism class uh, delivered by Pastor Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington, on the subject of baptism. And I know that uh, many of you listeners out there who are not Lutherans, what you're going to hear is going to sound um, like it's from planet Mars. I know that. I, I, I've i been there, done that. And uh, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, is that uh, I want you to hear Pastor Lastman out. I know that many of you don't agree with him, and I know that uh, what you're going to hear, you're going to you're, you're, you might even have a vehement knee-jerk reaction to it. Put put that aside. Listen to the entire teaching and then compare what you've heard him say to the Word of God. Open up your Bibles, and if you're going to disagree with him, that, that's perfectly fine. Um, but then provide solid biblical reasons for why you would disagree with him. Because he's going to talk about a lot of things. He's going to talk about a lot of things regarding baptism. He's going to talk about the biblically what uh, what the text says it is. He's going to talk about what it does. He's going to talk about how it applies to infants. He, there's all kinds of stuff in here that for many of you who are uh, who are just your, your garden variety evangelicals, what you're going to hear, you've never heard anyone teach this way before. And it's going to challenge you. But don't make this mistake. Don't make this mistake. I re- recently received an email from a listener who was frustrated because uh, they had a conversation with a gal who had recently read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. And she determined that that was a perfectly fine book. There, there was nothing wrong with it. And the criteria that she had come up with for determining that Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, was perfectly fine was that when she read it, she didn't have a check in her spirit. Yeah, that's not the way you determine... Uh, whether something is true or something is false. That's pure subjectivity. So what I'm going to ask you to do, put the subjectivity aside. Put your feelings aside. And put yourself, pretend you're attending a college course on, you know, and the college course has different, uh, you know, a sampling of different uh, theological positions regarding a particular doctrine. And in this college course, you're going to take notes, and you're going to have, and, and so the professor has called in somebody to present the Lutheran understanding of the biblical texts regarding the doctrine and teaching of baptism, what it is, what it does, who does the work, how it is applied, how it applies to a Christian, all of that kind of stuff. And so you're going to hear a, co- you know, basically a college class presentation of the Lutheran uh, understanding of the biblical text regarding baptism. That's it. And then after hearing Pastor Lastman out, I know that some of you, you, take notes, please. Well, please, please, please take notes while listening to this presentation. Some of you are going to have follow-up questions. Some of you are going to agree with some of the things he said. Some of you are going to go, I've never heard that before. And I find that compelling, and I find it challenging, and I'm not sure what to do with it. Perfectly fine place to be as well. The idea, then, is, is that the question at the end of it is, is this. Is what Pastor Lastman presented the correct understanding biblically to understand what uh, baptism is and what it does? Now, understand— this is important. When it comes to hermeneutics, one of the basic fundamental rules of biblical hermeneutics is that clear passages always govern. And what I mean by that is this, is that um, when the Bible 
when a particular Bible passage addresses a particular teaching or a particular subject, and it does so clearly, that becomes a governing passage. And so you can't you can't then take a passage that doesn't apply to that subject as a means of wiping out what that clear passage says. So when it comes to baptism, you have to always, always, always understand that the passages in the Scripture that address baptism govern, and that a passage that doesn't deal with baptism doesn't get to dethrone it as far as what the Bible teaches regarding baptism. Let me give you a classic example of how this hermeneutical principle is ignored in order to, uh, in order to cancel out a, 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 you know, a clear biblical doctrine. The, it, the, the doctrine here has to do with women's ordination. The Bible clearly says in no uncertain terms that women are not to be in a position of authority over a man when it comes to church. As a result of it, we can, we can basically say the clear passages of Scripture assert in no uncertain terms that women are not to be you know, pastors, plain and simple. That it's forbidden. It's what God's word says. So what happens is, is that in liberal denominations, in liberal in in liberal groups, they don't like that. It, it, it you know it it just it rubs them the wrong way. And so what they do is they take a passage that has nothing to do with women's ordination, and they rip it from context and they pit it against the clear passages regarding women's ordination. That passage, by the way. Um, says that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. So they'll say, see, there's a passage here that says in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, or male nor female, therefore it's okay to ordain women. And so what they do is they pit that verse, which isn't discussing women's ordination, it's talking about the unity of all believers, and they take that and they and they use it to dethrone the clear passages that talk about women's ordination. Now, the same rule applies when it comes to baptism. Okay, The passages in the Scripture that address baptism, who's doing the work, what it does, what it's for, all of that, those are the governing passages. So you can't take a passage from the Old Testament that doesn't apply to baptism— as a means of dethroning the clear passages. or You, you understand what I'm saying? So that's, that's an important thing to do. So as you're listening to this college-level presentation, if you would, on a, on a, on a view of baptism that you, that you may have never heard, the important question at the end is, is this what the Bible teaches? Is this true? And the way you determine that then is go back into the text, go back into your notes, and take a look at all of the passages that are uh, that are brought to bear regarding baptism, and say yes, this is this is what the scriptures say, or no, that's not what it says. I think Pastor Lastman is missing something here, and you know, and so that's the way you approach it. But uh, this is one of those uh, passages. This is one of these uh, editions of Fighting for the Faith. Because of the topic, because of it, it's it it has a tendency to be uh, controversial. But we're not afraid of uh, of doing controversial programming here on Fighting for the Faith. And uh, from time to time, it's important that we readdress this. And so 
I'll also use this in future editions. You know, when people email me, you know, what do you believe regarding baptism? I'm going to point them to to this edition that kind of really lays it out systematically that people can listen to. And so, if you want to know what I believe regarding baptism, it's the same thing that Pastor Lastman's laying out here. And I believe that he is correctly handling God's word, and that when you take the whole of what God's Word teaches regarding baptism, that these are the conclusions that the Holy Spirit intended for us to to draw from what he's revealed in his Word. Now, that being said, I know that many of you are going to disagree, and you're going to grow by being challenged. Plain and simple. Iron sharpens iron. This is one of those points. So, without any further ado, here is Pastor Ernie Lassman on the doctrine of baptism. Welcome to Lesson 10, entitled, Baptism. We will be discussing what baptism is, who should be baptized, and the blessings and daily use of baptism. Before we begin our lesson, let's first begin with prayer. Dear Father, once again, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word and to study it. May you grant us your grace and spirit to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's uh, switch gears. We're going to go to page 43. Start talking about holy baptism. Now, you notice I have these these three things up here. Word, baptism, Lord's Supper. I want to point out the obvious. When Jesus left this world, those are the only three things he left behind. And the reason I'm pointing that out to you If these are the three things he left behind, they must be very important. And you would be right to come to that conclusion. They must be very important. And what I'm going to try to show you tonight and two weeks from tonight, they're all important. Because some Christians will will agree the word's real important, and they'll give baptism and the Lord's Supper barely a nod. That's what we're going to talk about tonight and two weeks from tonight. So they're all important. Jesus uh, left all three behind. Okay. Let's see. I had a, Let's look at one of your handouts before we do our question. Diagram 46. Do you have that one? Yeah, baptism is a sacrament. That's what we're going to look at here. You can just kind of have that in front of you, and we'll be using that for a, a couple of questions here. So have that in front of you. Let's go to question number one then. Two sacred, and by sacred it means holy. The word sacred means holy. Two sacred or holy rites called sacraments. Would you highlight the word sacrament? I am going to explain that term to you, what it means, where it came from, etc. Called sacraments. Have a most important part in making us the happy and assured possessors of the treasures of God's grace. They are, and you might want to highlight, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, and I'll get to the word sacrament momentarily, so just bear with me. Let's look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20, in your green book. It's right in your green book. You don't have to look it up in your Bible. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of nations. And when you highlight, baptizing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. You can also highlight the word teaching if you want, but I'm not going to be emphasizing so much the word tonight as I am baptism. But by, he says baptism, that's this one right here, isn't it? And by teaching would be the word. So we, in that one passage, we have two of these means of grace, word and, and baptism. Okay. Now, from this we learn, our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the sacrament of holy baptism. Point one. Baptism is not an option. Baptism is not a custom or tradition of the church. Baptism comes directly from Jesus Christ and all the authority and importance and weight that comes with that. Okay? Now, it says by a sacrament... We mean, and I'm going, to give you, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to give you a better definition or, or make it a little neater for you. By a sacrament, we mean a divine ordinance in which God, through certain visible means, what would be the visible means of water? <laughs> what would be the visible means of baptism? Water. What would be the visible means of uh, the Lord's Supper? Bread and wine. Okay. Gives and seals to us the forgiveness which Christ has Earn for us. Okay, now see here we have baptism and Lord's Supper. Okay. Okay. So baptism and Lord's Supper give to us, right? What Christ won here. Which I'll show you. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the word sacrament. That is not in the Bible. Now that should not alarm you. As long as we have a biblical understanding of the word sacrament, that's okay. The word sacrament has been around a long time, at least since the 300s. And I'll tell you how it developed. Uh, But don't be bothered by the word sacrament, because we have a very significant name for God that's not in the Bible either, which all Christians accept. What would be that name of God that we all accept that's not in the Bible? No, that's in the no, that's in the Bible. What? The Trinity is that in the Bible? No, but all Christians believe in the Trinity or the Triune God, because that term, while not in the Bible, the terminology Triune God Trinity teaches the meaning of the Bible, that the Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God. Yet there are one God. So don't be disturbed about the word sacrament because the very word Trinity or triune God, which is basic to our Christian faith, that terminology is not in the Bible either. So where did the word sacrament come from? Well, it happened this way. There was an early church father by the name of Jerome who lived in the three and the four hundreds. It kind of overlapped those those, uh, centuries. Third and fourth, three hundreds and four hundreds. He was a very famous scholar, and what he is known for is Jerome translated the Bible, and the Old Testament, remember, was written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. He translated the entire Bible into Latin. And this version became known as, whoops, the Vulgate. Anybody ever hear the Vulgate before? I think I spelled that right, Vulgate. Because Vulgate comes from the Latin word vulgar. Now, in our, this shows what happens to language. In our day and age, vulgar means yucky, right? But in those days, Vulgate or vulgar simply means common. 
So it became known as the, uh, as the Vulgate because in his day, Latin was the common language of all the people. So by translating it into Latin, he was translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into the language of the people. Okay, now here's the point. Every time he came to the Greek word in the New Testament for mystery, and remind you here because you may not remember this, in the, in the New Testament, mystery refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we wouldn't have known anything about how God saved us in Jesus Christ unless he what? He told us. Before he told us, that was all a mystery. We didn't know about that. Now he's told us. So the, the word mystery in the New Testament refers to the gospel. Every time Jerome came to the Greek word for mystery, he translated it sacramentum. And of course, in the word sacramentum, you can see the word sacrament. Now what happened, and I, I don't know if there is an answer to this, but I don't know the answer if there is. And I'm not sure there is an answer. So the word sacrament then starts out basically as a reference to the gospel, the mystery, the gospel. But somewhere as the centuries and decades went by, it went, it went from meaning the gospel in general to the sacred acts like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because I don't know if you've figured this out yet, but even as the word is gospel, baptism and the Lord's Supper are also gospel because what we're going to see, the basic blessing of baptism and the Lord's Supper is forgiveness of sins. So somehow that all developed, I don't know. But it came down then that the sacrament referred to these, these, uh, these rites rather than the gospel in general. Uh, here, here's, here's what a sacrament is. One, given by Christ. Given by Christ. Was baptism given by Christ? Yes, we've already seen that. We'll see two weeks from tonight, Lord's Supper is given by Christ. Number two, must have visible elements Visible elements. We said the visible element in baptism is water. The visible element we'll see in the Lord's Supper is bread and wine. And three, very important, very important, attached to that visible element, water, bread and wine, the promise of God's forgiveness. The promise of God's forgiveness. So that's the definition, biblical definition of a sacrament instituted by Christ with visible elements, with the promise of forgiveness. Okay? Now, the Roman Catholic Church uh, has seven sacraments, and we have only two. Number one, baptism. Number two, Lord's Supper. Number three, confirmation. Number four, marriage. Number five, uh, let's call it confession. There's different terms. We call it penance, but we'll call it confession. Just so you know, he's listing out the Roman Catholic sacraments, not the biblical ones. He's just listing them off as what Roman Catholicism thinks a sacrament is. Number six, anointing of the, of the sick. Anointing of the sick. It used to be called last rites or extreme unction. Anointing of the sick. Number seven, holy orders. Holy orders like if you want to become a priest or a monk or a nun. 
Okay, let's go to this very, very quickly, unless you have comments after I'm done with them. Number one, baptism. Okay, yeah, we accept that as a sacrament. We don't have any argument there. Number two, the Lord's Supper. Yes, we accept that as a sacrament. We agree. Confirmation. No, we don't accept that as a sacrament, even though if you know anything about the Lutheran Church, we practice confirmation. Our young people here go through two years. You really get off easy. Our young people, sixth and seventh grade, through two years of, 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 of education, being taught God's word, and then in the seventh grade in our church here, they're confirmed in a ceremony, in a church service, and they take their first communion. But the problem is, there's no, do you know of anything in the Bible that says have a confirmation ceremony? So it's not commanded by God. Now, what is commanded by God? Teaching. That is commanded by God, teaching. But there's nothing in the Bible about once you're done teaching, have a confirmation ceremony. There's nothing in there. The other thing that's different uh, between us and the Roman Catholic Church is in the Roman Catholic Church, um, only the bishop, not even the priest, only the bishop can come in, and the emphasis is on the ceremony. And through this ceremony called confirmation and the laying hands on the child by the bishop, he receives the Holy Spirit. Well, there's nothing in the Bible connected with that. Is there laying on hands in the Bible? Yes, but not in a ceremony called confirmation. So we like confirmation. It's good, and it's a good way to teach our young people, uh, but there's no ceremony in the Bible that's been commanded by Christ or anything like that. Number four, marriage. Ah, was that given by God? Yeah, it's given by God. Are there visible elements? Well, not really, unless you want to call the, the man and the woman. But here's the, here's the kicker. Is there a promise anywhere in the Bible that if you get married, your sins are forgiven? See, see and that's our third, defin, third element of the definition. It has to be the promise of forgiveness of sin. So we accept marriage as an institution of God, but it's not a sacrament that gives forgiveness and eternal life. Okay, uh, anointing of the sick or last rite or extreme unction. Um, uh, there's no command in the Bible. The only reference to this, anybody know where the only reference to this really is in the New Testament? And it's not a command. It's just sort of a, it's in James. Yeah, that's in James. Call the elders of the church, which are the pastors and, and so forth and so forth and things like that. Yeah, anointing of oil and things like that. That's right. So here's my point. We're not against uh, going to somebody the sick, having prayers with them, devotions, even anointing with oil or something like this. But it's not a sacrament that in and of itself uh, gives the forgiveness of sins or, or, or something like that. It's not, it's not directly commanded by Christ. In other words, James mentioned it, but does Jesus mention it? No. There's nowhere mentioned by Jesus. So what I will do, for example, I go visit sick people all the time. And I pray with them and read God's word and remind them of their baptism. So there's nothing wrong with that. But there hasn't been a, given a specific ceremony or ritual uh, that we are to do. And then holy orders. That's being a priest, a monk, or a nun. Uh, the problem here historically is that if you became a monk or a priest or a nun, you got just a little bit more grace than the average Christian. Okay? And of course, there's nothing in the Bible there. I'm a pastor. I don't have any more grace than you have. I'm a pastor. I don't have any more forgiveness than you have. I'm a pastor. I don't have a closer walk with God than you do. Okay. So, uh, did I, by the way, did I skip over accidentally penance? Confession? Yeah, okay, let me do that real quick. Uh, <laughs> This one, this one sometimes, uh, Lutherans will sometimes speak of a third sacrament called uh, confession. 
uh, the, well, we, we're not against that, but there's really no visible element. But, uh, but clearly, God has commanded us, Jesus has commanded us to forgive in his name. And so our Lutheran confession says, if somebody really wants to push confession as a sacrament, okay, we won't argue that much about it. But there are some differences that I said in another lesson in that uh, you may never come to your, a Lutheran pastor for private confession because there's no command to do that. It's up to you. Might, you, might, you might not do that. Uh, so there's some differences there. So that's just real quickly, because i got to go on. But any quick question, concern, uh, just on that, so you know about the seven sacraments uh, in Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy? I think there's the anointing of oil in the Old Testament, isn't there, when David was anointed? Probably. So yeah, because, uh, well, it all, depends, uh, it all depends which passage you look up, but just let me make, let me make a generic statement. Oil often has... Two, two symbolic and sometimes real purposes. The Holy yeah, that's right. It has two. It has the function of, it often symbolized in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit at the installation or anointing of the king, prophet, and priest, and things like that. But then also it had medicinal qualities as well. So, so the oil had a, a two sides to it. A real physical part that had medicinal qualities for physical healing, and then a symbolic spiritual reality too, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, we've, we've done that then. Okay, well, let's go to baptize. What does it mean to baptize? Matthew 3.11, right in your booklet. I baptize you with what? Water. You can't have a baptism unless you have water. And then Matthew 28.19 says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So very simply then, to baptize means to apply water in the name of the triune God. Now, God has not specified any one method by which water is to be applied. Now, why would they say that? Because there are some Christians, maybe you know some of them, who say there's only one way to do it. Anybody know? Immersion. Immersion. And it's usually, I'm going to make it just a generic statement. There may be exceptions, just a generic statement. It's usually Baptist, some Pentecostal, something like that. That if you're not totally put under the water, it's not a real baptism. But when you look at the way the Bible uses the word baptize, I'm not going to look up all those passages. You do it on your own. It's just going to take too much time. But it can be wash or pour or sprinkle. So our point is, and the overwhelming majority of Christians in the entire world agree with this position, it doesn't matter how you apply the water, but that you apply the water in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why is this an issue? Well, it's not an issue for us. But it can be an issue if a church thinks there's only one way. For example, before I got married to my wife, she was a Baptist. And she was baptized when she was nine years old by immersion. When she went through an adult information class a long time ago, and she became a Lutheran, she was not rebaptized. We accepted her baptism. It was a Christian baptism. We accept baptism by immersion. But if I wanted to leave the Lutheran church and join her Baptist church, they would not have accepted my baptism because I, it was, the water was poured on my head in the name of the triune God. And they wouldn't accept my baptism, and they would want me to be baptized again. And so that's why it's an issue, because we don't agree with that. For that, that Basically, they're saying, my baptism is not what? Not valid. And we disagree with that based upon the Bible. That's the only reason it's an issue. So we Lutherans accept... Any kind of application of water, and most Christians have that position. It's just not the Lutheran position. Most Christians agree to apply the water in any manner. Immersion, pouring, sprinkling, in the name of the triune God. Okay, uh, let's go to number three. Well, who's to be baptized? Uh, number three says, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen: make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them. We might as well, it says, from this we learn all nations, that is, all human beings are to be baptized. Well, let's get right down to it because it's number four. Why are also infants to be baptized? Oh, now here's where we come to the controversy. First of all, a couple of things. We are going to look at the Bible, and it's important that we see that to baptize babies is biblical. That's ultimately why I hope to show you. But I'll also be saying some other things that will help put what I'm going to say about the Bible sort of in its proper proper context. For example, um, and I realize the only thing that can prove infant baptism is the Bible, but you need to think about other things too. For example, probably 75% of Christians today baptize babies. Now, I agree, that doesn't in and of itself make it right. You've got to look at the Bible. But the point is, the vast majority of Christian churches baptize infants. Now, they may do it for different reasons or have a little bit different theology. I won't dispute that. But the overwhelming majority of Christians baptize babies. The other thing that maybe you don't know, too, is baptizing babies has been around for a long, 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 long time. Now, if you've been tracking with me every once in a while... I'll say that anything that we Lutherans or other Protestants disagree with in the Roman Catholic Church, most of those teachings that we object to, the power of the Pope, purgatory, praying to Mary, and things like that, all those things basically developed between the year 500 and 1,000. In other words, generally speaking, you don't find those things in the first 500 years of the church. But you do find infant baptism. In other words, infant baptism is not a later development in the Middle Ages, 500 to 1,000, like some of these other things. Uh, I'm just going to speak generically. Uh, We have references back to about uh, um, 125. Jesus was crucified in 30, uh, 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 referring to infant baptism. And then we have other references like in 180, 198, about references to baptism, uh, infant baptism, things like that. Uh, there was only one person, a very famous church father, who was later declared a heretic, so that should be a red flag, who objected to uh, uh, infant baptism, and he wrote around 200, okay? and he was objecting to infant baptism, which tells you if he's objecting to it in 200, already by 200, they're baptizing infants, aren't they? And his name was Tertullian. Anybody ever heard of him? Kind of a famous church father. But uh, he finally became a heretic. I hope I spelled that right. I think there's two L's. T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N. Now, I don't want to make a big deal of that. I'm just trying to give you some parameters so that you don't think, so that you put this topic of infant baptism in its proper context, that the vast majority of Christians do this, and that it has roots in early Christian uh, literature and early church fathers. But finally, we have to uh, go to the Bible. Now, what I hope to show you in the next, oh, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, four important things about why we baptize babies. So, uh, would you write them down, and we'll just, it'll take me a while to get through them all, so be patient with me. But this is why we baptize babies uh, based upon the Bible, okay? Because, first of all, uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that says baptize babies. Is there? No. Ah, is there anywhere in the Bible that says don't baptize babies. No. So what we have to do, since the church has baptized uh, babies uh, since the very beginning, let me back up again. 
when did the church, when did some Christians, when did some Christians stop baptizing babies and only have what's called adult or believer baptisms? Ready? 16th century, 1500s. Up to the 1500s, church always baptized babies. Only began in the 1500s that they stopped baptizing babies. Okay. Now, what are the, what are we, so we have to look at the Bible. Here's the four things I'm going to try to show you the rest of the evening about why we baptize babies. Number one, need. Just write N-E-E-D. And you know where I'm going to go with that one. Are babies sinners? Well, we're going to review that, aren't we? Well, if they're sinners, how do they get what Jesus did for them? That's going to be a big one. Number two, write the word command. Command. In other words, and this is going to be a slam dunk too, are babies included in Jesus' command to baptize all nations? And I'm going to say, yep. We're going to see that. Yep. Number three, and this is a biggie. Write the word power. Now, what I mean by that is, depending upon our theology of baptism and our understanding of baptism, will lean us one way or the other about baptizing children. Here's my point. If baptism has no power, if baptism doesn't do anything, if baptism doesn't give anything, well, then why would you want to baptize babies? Ah, but if I hope to show you, baptism is a spiritual power of God, and I'll show you how it is, and baptism actually does something and gives something, well, you can see why you might want to baptize a baby then. I hope to show you that. Okay, we're going to pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills and uh, you know do, do our station identification thing. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christianity is unique in that it is based upon historical fact. None of the other religions are that in which if you could disprove one historical fact, the whole religion would crumble. But that's how it is with Christianity. If you can disprove that Christ did not raise from the dead, then there is no such thing as Christianity. That's a topic of a debate for a live Table Talk radio presentation. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The debaters is Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the book, What Do You Think About Jesus? versus Dr. Robert Price, fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. This all takes place on Pirate Christian Radio, Sunday night, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in live to pose your questions to the debaters. Listen to Table Talk Radio Live, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, on Pirate Christian Radio, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to 
pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we're back. Warning, God's word is true. He can trust his word. And he has us believe things that just seem unbelievable. But they're not, they're true. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. I have been saying it, and I'll say it a little bit more because uh, we, you know, we're in the middle of a little bit of a crisis here at Fighting for the Faith, and that is is that uh, we're not meeting our budget. And as a result of it, uh, that that's just not a good thing. But, you know, we've got a large enough audience Uh, that I'm not worried, and we have a big God. And so here's the idea, is that uh, during the month of May, we need to pick up about 350 new members of the uh, Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Uh, That will ensure that we're able to to meet our budgeted expenses uh, as they continue to increase as a result of our growing audience size and uh, and. All of that kind of stuff. So, you know, as we continue to grow, we need our giving to keep pace with it. So, uh, because it's not, you know, the, you know, the, you know, what we need to be making and what uh, and uh, what we're making are not are not equal. Uh, it it's important that uh, you know we we fix that problem. And so, the way you uh, fix that problem is support us financially. And uh, the way you do it, visit our, our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, there's two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to that. And when you join our crew, that makes it so that as we publish new works and bring make them available, you get them at no additional cost. And uh, right now, we've uh, recently published the uh, uh, a book entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther and edited by me, Chris Rosebro. So uh, by joining our crew, you automatically will get that if you join any time between now and the end of May. Of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, um, and that allows you to specify the amount, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're going to continue with this uh, this presentation of by Ernie Lastman of the Lutheran understanding of the biblical texts and teaching regarding baptism. Here is Ernie Lastman. And number four, write the word faith and the word gift, because what I hope to show you as we go through all this, and I think, I think if you've been listening to me, You've already heard me say this. Faith is a gift given from God. Now, if that's true of a 45-year-old person who receives the gift of faith through the Word, then you're not going to be stunned to find out that God can give the gift of faith to a baby. And I'll talk about the faith of infants 
because the Bible does talk about the faith of infants. We'll see that. Okay, so those are the four things that we're going to have to look at as we go through about baptism. All right. It says Matthew 28, 19. It says, make disciples of all nations. Would you highlight the word or underline or however you want to do it, the word nation. And of course, there's other passages, but the main point here is if Jesus wanted to put some kind of a restriction on baptism, here would have been a good time to do it, right? Baptize all nations of people who are over seven. Baptize all nations of people who are over a year. You see what I'm getting at here? This is where he should have said something. There is no restriction. Now, a baby is a part of a nation. A classic illustration, I've just had two families in our church who have had brand new babies. And let's pretend that they're doing a a census of Seattle. They want to know how many people are living in Seattle. So let's just go go the old-fashioned way. I don't know how they do this anymore, but the old-fashioned way, they knock on the door, they have their, their tablet and everything. We're taking a census of Seattle to see how many people are living in the Seattle boundaries. How many people are in this house? They've got a mom and a dad and a baby they just brought three three days ago from the hospital. How many people are they going to say are living in that house? Three. So that three-day-old baby is part of Seattle, and that three-old-day baby is part of the nation we call the United States of America. That's what Jesus says, baptize all nations. He gives no restriction uh, whatsoever. Now look at Acts 2, 38-39. This is Peter. This is after... Uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which remembers about evangelism and missions. And Peter preaches a great sermon here on Pentecost. And at the end of it, he says, be baptized every one of you. So that's not an option, is it? Because Jesus commanded it. For this promise is to you and what? And to your children. Now we're going to hear something momentarily. I'll just give you a hint where we're going with this. Many of you, perhaps all of you, are familiar with the Jewish custom that was given by God of circumcision. Now, only the males were circumcised. But how old was a male child when he was circumcised? Eight days. Eight days old. And do you understand the significance of circumcision in the Old Testament? That eight-day-old child became a part of God's people by circumcision at eight days. Days, And we're going to show you a passage in Colossians that, bab- that baptism has replaced circumcision. And so this is probably, scholars will say this, probably the most logical, reasonable, clear explanation why there isn't made up more of a big deal in the New Testament about baptizing babies is because the Christian church started with a bunch of Jews who were already accustomed of eight-year-old children being brought into God's kingdom. So, and I'll show you the passage later. So they didn't think about it. Of course, you circumcised your baby, now you baptize your baby. Okay. Uh, John 3, 5 and 6, still in your booklet. This is Jesus speaking. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And would you uh, highlight born of water and the Spirit? This is a reference to baptism. Uh, the water, and now notice, and we'll see this later too, notice the Holy Spirit's associated with what? Baptism. We'll see another passage here too. And here, you're basically, they're basically saying, you are born again by 
baptism. Now, if you know, I'm not going to do this because I don't have time. Many of you already know that you can be born again through the word, right? Well, you can be born again through baptism. The Holy Spirit's there. I'm going to show you where, the, where baptism gets its power. Just have to be patient with me as I go step by step. But clearly he says you're born of water and the spirit. Okay? You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Anybody remember who Jesus is talking to in this conversation? Nicodemus the Pharisee. And the reason Jesus says it this way is because the Pharisees, not Nicodemus, but most of the Pharisees, refused to be baptized by John or Jesus' disciples either. And he says, you reject my baptism, you're lost. That's what he means by that. Okay, now the other thing is uh, when, when we talked about circumcision and things like that, uh, well, we'll do this later. I was going to tell you that whole households were baptized, which I'm, I'll get to. So I'll just, I'll just wait on that. So turn the page, please. Turn the page. I'll get to the household baptism in just a minute. Uh, top of page 44 is Mark 10, 13 to 16. says they brought children. Now, these would be Jewish children. Remember, we're not talking about pagans, heathens, unbelievers. These are Jewish children, which in Jesus' day are the people of... God, right? Okay, so you got to remember that. They brought children for him to touch, and the disciples scolded them for it. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, you know how I get kind of silly sometimes. And this is what the disciples were saying. Get those kids out of here. (laughs) Jesus doesn't have time to deal with kids. He's only interested in adults who can understand him. You probably hear my sarcasm a little bit in there, don't you? Okay, but what's Jesus' response to this? Right? But when Jesus saw this, he was what? Whoa, it's a strong word. I can't remember. I, I always forget to look it up. But this, this Greek word here that's used for indignant is only used about two or three times by Jesus. And this is one of them. Jesus was not a happy camper that these disciples were trying to keep these little children away from him, right? And so what does he say? Let the little children, or let the children come to me. Do not try to stop them. Why not? Oh, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now let's pause here because sometimes well-meaning people get this all mixed up. The way you don't want to understand the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, you don't want to understand that as children are innocent which would be a total denial of what teaching that we've already been over many times? Original sin. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, first of all, these are Jewish children who are already already what? Part of God's kingdom. They're not pagans. They're not Gentiles. They're not Romans. They're people of God, right? And what he's saying is, I also want little children in my kingdom. So it's nothing to do about they're innocent or anything like that. Then he says, I tell you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know where all you're coming from, so sometimes I may say something. It may not make sense to you, or it may. But some people say, you know, children can't have faith in Jesus Christ because they can't do what adults can do. Well, now, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus say the exact opposite here? Jesus doesn't say little children have to become like adults before they make a decision for Jesus. No, he says, you adults, you need to become like little children and just believe, right? That's what he says. Okay. And then it says, uh, he put his arms around them, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, Luke eighteen fifteen tells us these children were, would you highlight it? 
infants or babies. I don't know why he just doesn't use the Luke 18, but that's okay. The reason for it is you see in the first line up there in Mark, they brought children. Uh, there are several different Greek words in the New Testament for a child. And some of them, it's just a generic word. You can't tell the age of the child. And there's other words that kind of tell you the age. Well, Luke 18 tells us what, how old these kids were. They were little, little children. Okay, infants. Okay. Now, here's the big question, among other things. Let's look at the next Bible passage. Matthew 18, 6. This is Jesus speaking. He says, one of these little ones who want? Who believe in me. Children can have faith if you believe, and this is where it's so important, if you've been tracking with me, if faith is a gift, if you think that human beings make decisions for Jesus, you've just denied the whole doctrine of original sin, right? Nobody makes a decision for Jesus. Faith is given as a gift. And how does he give it? Well, for an adult or an older child, he gives it through the word. And what we're going to see is he can do the very same thing through baptism. Now, we've got one passage there. Write down a couple of more and uh, show you some more on this. Matthew 21, 16. And then in parentheses, put Psalm. You can abbreviate PS if you want. Save a little space. 8, 2. And the reason I do that is because Matthew 21, 16 is going to quote Psalm 8, 2. Then write down Matthew eleven twenty five and Second Timothy three fifteen. Uh, nobody can be saved unless they have faith in Jesus. Okay? So it's important that we understand that little infants and babies and children can have faith in Jesus. That's why we're looking at these passages. Okay. So let's look at Matthew uh, uh, twenty one sixteen. Um, the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the context. If you go to verse 1, you'll see the context is kind of ironic because I talked about Palm Sunday this Sunday. That's what this is. It's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday. And you can kind of see the verses going on there. Then go down to verse 12, and you see this is where he clean, cleanses the, the temple, throwing out the money changers and everything and so forth and so on. And then, okay, uh, then go to verse uh, 15. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the what? The children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. The Pharisees were now what? Indignant. (laughs) Okay, 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? And this is a quote from Psalm 8, verse 2. From the lips of children and what? Infants, you have ordained praise. Now, we're going to look up a few other passages, and then I'm going to do the best I can, which will be not very well, <laughs> to explain the faith of infants. But, but you've, you've seen the Bible passages. Let's go look at Matthew 11.25. At that time, Jesus said, he's praying to his heavenly Father who sent him into this world. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to... Little children. Now, doesn't faith sound like a gift to you there, too? Yeah. It doesn't have to do with how smart you are if you have faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift from God, revealed from the Father. Okay, let's look at uh, the last one I gave you. 2 Timothy 3, 15. Well, let's start at 14, put it a little bit in the context. Otherwise, we're in the middle of a sentence. 
3.14. Now, Paul is talking to young Pastor Timothy. That's the letter that he's writing to. What does he say? But as for you, Pastor Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, I just gave you those passages to show you that the Bible does talk about infants being included in the kingdom of God, infants having faith and believing in Christ and things like this. That's the easy part. Now comes the hard part. I really don't understand that any better than you do about how an infant has faith, but let me give you a little bit, some illustrations that may help a little bit. Faith is kind of an amazing thing, a, a mysterious thing. I mean, in some ways we can define it very easily, you know. But in other ways, it's very hard to explain. For example, when you're sleeping at night, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, do you have faith while you're sleeping? Well, you're not thinking about it, though, are you? No, you're not, are you? A more extreme. You're a Christian, you have faith in Jesus Christ. Tragically, you're in an automobile accident, and you're in a coma at the hospital. You're still alive, but you're in a coma. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Well, of course you do. Of course you do. You see what I'm getting at here? And that's the kind of way this mystery, all we need, as I've told you ad nauseum from lesson number one, about not human reason, not our emotions or experiences, but what the Bible says. And clearly the Bible talks about faith as a gift and children can believe. And so I don't understand this any better than you, but with these little illustrations about it being in a coma or sleeping at night, or I'm going to a Mariner's game Saturday night. I'm rubbing it in right now. They're two and one right now. You know, by the time I get there Saturday night, I don't know if I'll be happy or not. <laughs> But I'll be cheering like crazy, right? Am I thinking about Jesus? No. But do I have faith in Jesus? Of course I do. So that's about the best I can do, and I've read a lot on this. I don't know anybody, all the people, and there's great people a lot smarter than me, who also believe what I'm teaching you. It's just one of those mysteries that we cannot completely explain, which you've heard me say many times in this class. So um, I believe that children do have faith, and they're going to be given faith, as I'll show you, uh, through baptism. And that's the last component I want to say here, and then I'll maybe uh, go on to, from this we learn, and then open up for your comments. It's so important that you understand, believe, and accept that faith is a gift given to you. That's what grace is. It's not like, okay, Jesus did his part. Okay? Now you've got to do your part. <laughs> That's not grace. That's tag team. Faith, we could look at tons of passages, which I've done in the past. Faith is a gift. Work through the means of grace. And God can do that. If God can do that to a 45-year-old person, he can do it also for a baby. Now, let me do from this we learn, then I'll let you, you comment. We still have much more to say about baptism. But from this we learn, infants are to be baptized because Christ has commanded us to baptize all nations, and infants belong to all nations. B, because baptism, as far as we know, in the Bible, is the only means by which infants can ordinarily come to faith and enter God's kingdom, and God's kingdom belongs to infants. By the way, another one I didn't bring up. Some of you know this story. I'm always a little reluctant to bring it up because we don't want to make this story the standard. But it does show something interesting. John the baptizer. Some of you know the story in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. You know this story? And yeah, 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they were cousins, if you didn't know that. Elizabeth, okay. Mary, who's carrying Jesus in her womb, comes in the presence of Elizabeth, who has John in her womb, and we're told that John leaped in the womb of his mother because he was in the presence of the mother of, or Jesus, okay? And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what we have to be careful, that's why I'm always hesitant to bring this one up. That's not true of all people. You can't say, oh, everybody's filled with the Holy Spirit, just like John. No, because John was a special person. But what I'm trying to show you is, John was an infant, right? And if it was just a one-time deal, it shows us an infant can have the Holy Spirit. And even in the womb, he left in the womb of his mother in the presence of Jesus. So these other things then um, become more clear. So, because baptism is the only means by which infants can ordinarily come to faith and enter God's kingdom, and we know God's kingdom belongs to infants because Jesus said so. And C, because infants can believe on the basis of the passage we've looked at. And baptism has taken the place of circumcision, which was performed on infants when they were eight days old. Let's look that passage up real quick. Kind of watching my clock a little bit, but we're doing okay. Let's look that one up. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Let's start at verse 9. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. If you know, if I had my little plastic light up here, I'd turn it on, right? <laughs> See, I don't even have to hold it up anymore. You can all picture it. And you have been given fullness in Christ. Okay, fullness in Christ. You've been given that. Does that sound like a gift to you? It does to me. Gift. You've been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority, in him you were also circumcised. Hmm. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done with hands, in other words, not with a Jewish circumcision. Well, what are you talking about, Paul? But the circumcision done by Christ. Watch that. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him. So baptism is the New Testament circumcision. Okay, let's go back to our green booklet then. The apostles also, we're not going to look up these. It just takes too much time. You live on your own. The apostles baptized whole families. Now, in the Roman world, what we call the nuclear family is much bigger than it is today. Essentially, today, the nuclear family is mom, dad, and kids, right? But, you know, it was only a couple of generations ago. The nuclear family is mom, dad, kids, and grandma and grandpa. You know, like the Waltons. Have you ever saw the Waltons on TV? But in the ancient world, in Rome, it was even bigger than that. The nuclear family was mom, dad, kids, grandma, grandpa, okay, some other relatives, and house servants, and things like this. Okay? Now, if they baptize whole household, the implication is there had to be what in some of those households? Infants. And they don't say they baptized all the adults. They say they baptized the whole household. Okay? And you can look those up uh, on your own. Okay, uh, then it says, uh, sponsors serve as witnesses that children have been baptized. Uh, let me talk about this. Uh, sponsors, I didn't realize how ancient this was. Sponsorship goes back at least to 200. I didn't realize that. What we call godparents. Okay. Now, it's not in the Bible. You don't have to have a godparent for your child. You don't have to have a sponsor. It's a good Christian Custom and what a godparent or child does is not uh, godparent or sponsor does is not only witness to the baptism. Okay, 
Yeah. Was I baptized? I lost my certificate. Yeah, I was there. You were baptized. Oh, good. Now I know that. Okay. Uh, not only uh, witness, but then they also do things like they help raise the child spiritually. On the day of their baptism, they may send a little card or have take them out for a little dessert or something on their baptism. So godparents or sponsors like help mom and dad in their spiritual nourishment of their children. Okay, that's what it is. But you don't have to have it, but it's a good custom. Let's go to number five. What is the benefit of baptism? And you'll find that in diagram 47. I think you have that, diagram 47. I get lost myself. Yeah, the blessings of baptism. The blessings of baptism. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit about now. The blessings. So Galatians, this is Paul writing to the churches, which is today in central Turkey. It was a Roman province. Churches in Galatia. He says what? You are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now what I want you to see, and this runs throughout the entire New Testament, the inseparable connection between faith in Jesus and what? Baptism. Baptism. Uh, now, what does it mean to put, on, to put on Christ? Well, it means that you become a child of God and have everything he offers. Let's pretend uh, that this is a white dinner jacket that I have, a white dinner jacket. And the white dinner jacket represents what Jesus has done, forgiveness of sins, peace, eternal life, and all that. And let's pretend my black clergy shirt is, is my sin, original sin and everything. He says, in baptism, what do you do? You put on... Christ, which means now the righteousness of Christ, remember this is a white dinner jacket, right, covers my sin, which is a symbol for forgiveness, right, Mm -hmm. and closely related then, we are a child of God, Uh, basically what we learn when it comes to this aspect of being a child of God, okay, now baptism does many things, we're just talking about the one right now, here's how I usually try to say it, baptism is your adoption papers, we're all adopted, if you're a Christian. We're, adopt, we're not born into the kingdom of God, right? We're adopted into the kingdom of God, and baptism is where we're adopted, and baptism is our baptismal paper. And so I can say, and I'll, say, I'll come back to this later tonight, but one of the things I always say when I remember my baptism is I say, I am a baptized, forgiven child of God. That's who I am. That's who all Christians are. I'm a baptized, forgiven child of God. And that's what that passage is saying. Well, how about Acts 2.38? We saw this a little bit earlier. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for what? Well, look up here. Where'd the forgiveness come from? How is it given to you? Well, yeah, it's given you in the Word, but where's this? It's also given where? In baptism. See, and we don't understand that figuratively. How do you understand that figuratively? How do you find any comfort? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, but you don't receive forgiveness of sins in your baptism. No, that's what he says. That's a promise, and the, 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 the appropriate response for a promise from God is what? Okay, I believe that. Wonderful. Okay. And there's other passages as well about forgiveness of sins. Actually, uh, write this one down, and I'm just going to quote it for you because it's real easy. You can look it up on your own later. Acts 22, 16. And what, what we learn there is Paul is talking about his being brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And he says, And I was told, Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Wash away your sins. Well, that's just saying your sins are forgiven in baptism, right? 
That's why you can be adopted into God's children. Because remember, what did we say separated us from God? Our sin. Well, if in your baptism all your sins are washed away, now you're in God's family. Clean. You're squeaky clean. Okay, First uh, Peter 3.21. Oh, this is a good one. Baptism now what? Now somebody said, well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus saved me. I thought faith saved me. Now what you have to do when you read the Bible, you have to realize the Bible speaks in more than one way. And you have to know all the different ways the Bible speaks. Because when the Bible says Jesus saves you, and when the Bible says faith saves you, and when the Bible says baptism saves you, there's no contradiction whatsoever. It all goes what? It all goes together. Now, having said that, and it's right up there, what does the Apostle Peter mean when he says, baptism now saves you? And it's right there. Can you figure it out? What is, what is Peter saying? Baptism now saves you. Okay, yeah. In other words, how does baptism save you? You said it. Because baptism gives you what Jesus has won for you. Baptism is a pipe. So if, if baptism gives you what Jesus went for you, then in that sense, baptism saves you. Because it gives you what Jesus won. Forgiveness of sins. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's why Peter says that. Okay, uh, John 3, 5 says, this is Jesus speaking, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... Uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What I want you to see here is who's associated with the waters of baptism? The Holy Spirit. Do you see that? I'm going to give you another one in a minute. But before I give you the other one, go back to the baptism of Jesus. Remember the baptism of Jesus? We've got the second person of the triune God standing in human form in the water, right? We have the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son whom I love. Listen to him. And who descends on him? And at what time does he descend on him? In baptism, are you follow me? In baptism, okay, in baptism. So even the Holy Spirit is associated with the waters of Jesus' baptism, right? He descends upon him, okay? and that's what we say too, right? There's several things I could say. If I was going to preach on that, the baptism of Jesus, I'd talk about, first of all, Jesus. That's the most important part. But then if I was going to apply it to our baptism, now listen how I say this. When you're baptized, listen how I say this. When you're baptized, all your sins are forgiven. When you're baptized, figuratively speaking, figuratively speaking, the heavens open and the voice of the Father says to you who are being baptized, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're back to the idea of adoption. And in the waters of your baptism, you also receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go to one that's in your green booklet, but they didn't get the whole thing in. So let's look it up on our own. We're still at number five. See where it says uh, Titus 3, 5? They left some out. I wish they didn't. Uh, we have the washing of regeneration. What's, what's regeneration? That's what? Rebirth? So you're born again through baptism. But let's look up the whole passage. A little, put, get a little more complete there. Maybe let's put a little bit more context. Let's start at verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, being hated, and hating one another. Okay, but then we made a decision for Jesus. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His what? His mercy. How, now watch. How did He do this? He saved us what? See that little preposition? 
through, watch this, through a pipe, by means of, okay? Peter says baptism now saves you. Peter's saying the same thing Paul is. How did he give me this? He saved us through the washing, that's baptism, of rebirth. That's being born again and renewed by the Holy Spirit. So what I want you to see is get all of it here with baptism, the waters of baptism. We have the concepts of being saved through baptism okay? and being born again through baptism. And I'm going to show you how that works in just a little bit. And receiving the Holy Spirit. So, so we have several passages uh, along those lines. Okay, well, let me do uh, from this we learn. From this we learn baptism then is a means of grace. It's a pipe. Right? It's a pipe. How does God give us this? It's a pipe. By which the Holy Spirit offers, and I want to say gives, offers and gives all that Christ has won for us. All that Christ has won for us. Forgiveness of sins, spiritual life, and salvation. And B, regenerates infants, creating in them the faith which accepts these treasures and makes them children of God and heirs of heaven. So in other words, when we baptize an infant, now listen to how I say this, we simply trust God that he's going to do what he says in the Bible he's going to do. So you see, the Christian faith never gets beyond the word faith. Because we do all these things believing Jesus will keep his word. And that if we apply the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though we can't see it with our eyes, he'll do all this stuff. And so then our children become God's children, not by being born in the world, but they become God's children by being baptized. Let me give you a quick illustration of this. It'll be very quick because I'll probably come back to this later. My second son, who's now almost 26 years old, was born with a birth defect. And it was called a coanal atresia. And what happened is that when he was in the womb of of his mother, the the passageway from his nose down, the esophagus down here, uh, was blocked with membrane and cartilage. Now that's serious because obviously to to feed, to to, uh, breastfeed or bottle feed or whatever, he had to shut his... And they couldn't breathe through his nose. That's a problem. And the other problem is, I, I, I didn't know this. It's amazing what you learn when you have medical problems. Is an infant will not naturally open its mouth to breathe if it can't breathe through the nose. Like you and I, we get a real bad cold and we're sleeping at night without even thinking. Our mouth goes, you know, and all that snoring. That doesn't happen in an infant until about they're three months old. So we have a real problem here. Okay? And so he's going to have to have emergency surgery. And they had to go up to the roof of his mouth and everything. Now, here's the point, and I'll come back to this story later on. I baptized Mark before they took him off for the surgery. Why did I do that? What could happen in the surgery or after surgery? He could die. And if he was going to die, I was going to have the comfort. I did what my Lord Jesus told me to do. And if he would have died, I would have been 100% certain I'd see him on the day of the resurrection. If I didn't baptize him, I would have the hope of seeing him, but not quite the certainty. Do you understand what I mean? Because we're not born as children of God. And, and, that, and that, we'll get back into that a little bit later. I promise you. Okay, well, number six. 
Well, what does baptism do for someone who's already come to faith? Okay, like they've already heard the gospel. You know, they're a teenager or they're adult. Uh, they believe in Jesus. Then what happens? Well, we have a little story here in Acts, Acts 8. Uh, Philip began with the scriptures, and he's, by the way, he's preaching the gospel to Philip from Isaiah. Remember how many times I told you that the Old Testament's also about who? Jesus. The New Testament says the Savior has come. The Old Testament says the Savior is coming. So he's preaching the gospel to out of Isaiah chapter 53. Okay? Told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to a small body of water, and the eunuch, he was from Ethiopia, said, Look, water, why can't I be baptized? You can, Philip answered, if you believe with all your heart. And the eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So here we have a confession of faith, right? He's an adult. He stopped the chariot. And they went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught him away. The eunuch never saw him again, and went on his way rejoicing. What I want you to see is, went on his way what? Rejoicing after his what? His baptism. He believed in Jesus, and he was baptized. In other words, to use modern language I've given you, been given you, in his baptism, he received his adoption papers, didn't he? And that's why he was now rejoicing. He was a baptized, forgiven child of God in Jesus Christ. Well, go up to the top of the next page because I hope you'll find this helpful, enlightening. Uh, I, I usually find it that way. Well, what are we learning here? Well, baptism for the person who already believes. Baptism then is a divine seal by which he individually, personally receives what? Added assurance. What do you mean added? Well, here, look up here, please. He already has the assurance here, doesn't he? In the Word. But now that he's baptized... Even more assurance, because now something has actually been done to him, right? Actually, something's been done to him, that he is indeed God's dear child and heir. At the same time, he publicly declares himself a Christian. Now, this parenthesis is what I want you to see. Christ's command says, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Children are baptized, then taught. Adults are taught, then baptized, and I wish what he should have said is, and taught some more. (laughs) But what I want you to see is in the command to baptize, baptizing and teaching always go together. Whether baptism comes first, and then teaching, or teaching, and then baptism, and then more teaching. We never separate teaching and baptism They go together. Okay? Okay, um, here's a real important question. How can a little water do that? I, I got an answer for you. And it's right in Ephesians. I should say Paul has an answer for you. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Christ cleansed her, the church. Now, cleanse means washed, right? By the washing of water, that's baptism with what? The Word. In other words, and I'm going to give you some illustrations that I think you'll find very helpful. Baptism can do all these things, not because there's something special in the water. It's just normal what? Water. But baptism can do all these things because God says so. God says, you apply water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the context of the Christian faith. This is what I'll do. 
So baptism gets its power not from the water itself. I mean, it's just plain old tap water, isn't it? Ah, but when we use that water the way Jesus Christ has told us to use that water, we can trust in God's promises to do everything he says. So the power, this isn't magic. It comes from the very powerful word of God. And most conservative evangelical Christians agree that the word of God is what? Powerful. Well, that's how baptism gets its power. Because of washing of water with the word. Now let me give you two biblical illustrations that you might find very helpful of what I'm trying to say. So write these down and then we'll look them up. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. The second one, 2 Kings 5, 8 to 15. Let me give you the context here. Charlton Heston has just delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. You remember that. <laughs> and they're going around in the wilderness and everything. And they're starting to get short on food and short on water. And you know what human nature is like, right? You know, they're starting to gripe and complain. And this is where we pick up the story. Verse 4. They traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt just to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and bit the people. And many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, and he meant a bronze snake, as you're going to see. A bronze snake. And put it on a pole. And anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now let me paraphrase it for you. Okay, so the people are griping and complaining, okay? And God has to, you know, it's like, it's like a, a, a parent with a strong-willed child. Okay, all right. So he sends poisonous snakes among the people, right? And they start getting bit and things are obviously different now. And so the people come to Moses and they say, oh boy, uh, we sinned when we griped and grumbled against you and God. Would you go to God and see if he'll forgive us and do something for us? So Moses does, and God says, okay, I tell you what, you take a, a bronze snake, make it out of bronze, mold a snake there, put it on a pole, you take that pole with the bronze snake on it, you plant it right out there in the middle of the camp, and anyone who's bitten by a poisonous snake, bite. If they'll look at the bronze snake, they'll be healed of their poisonous snake bite. And they were. Why were they healed? Faith in what? In the word, the promise. In other words, was there anything magical about this pole with a bronze snake on it? There's nothing magical about that pole with the bronze Ah, but what did God say? He put his promise or word attached to that pole, didn't he? Right? If they had looked anywhere else, they would not have been healed of their poisonous snake bite, would they? Because God's promise to be healed of the poisonous snake bite was attached only to the pole with the bronze snake. That's the way it is with baptism. God says, you do this with water, I'll do this. Okay? Now our next example uses water, and it's a good one. So let's look this one up. 2 Kings 5. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, chapter 5. 8 to 15. Now, we kind of come in the middle of the story, so let me give you a real quick background here. Chapter 5, 8 and following. Here's the background. Uh, as often was the case in this time period, there were many wars that were going on, and the northern kingdom of Syria okay, was at war with, with Israel. And a, a Syrian army came down from the north, and they raped and pillaged and killed Israelites, etc. And this one soldier by the name of Naaman uh, took some hostages back uh, to his home country of Syria in the north. And one of them was a little Israelite girl. We don't know how old she was. Probably somewhere between 13 and 17. It's hard to tell. Anyway, what happened is this captain in the Syrian army by the name of Naaman got the dreaded disease of leprosy. Okay? And he tried everything to be cured of this dreaded disease of leprosy. Nothing worked. And finally, this Israelite girl who was made a house servant in the captain's home, said, hey, there's a great prophet down in Israel. Why don't you go down there and see if the great man of God can help you? This is where we pick up the story then in chapter 5, verse 8. When Elisha, that's the prophet, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel has torn his robes, he sent him uh, with this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have, have the man come to me, Naaman, and he will know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman, the Syrian, went with his horses and chariots. Now think about this soldier. He has a contingent, doesn't he? He's just not going by himself. He's going with a contingent of his army, chariots, soldiers, horses, all that stuff. He can all, a lot of pomp and circumstance, right? He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger. Oh, now watch this. <laughs> Now, see if you read your Bible carefully. There's lots of humor and interesting things in here. Did you notice the prophet doesn't even meet him? You notice that? He sends him what? A messenger. <laughs> Don't you know how important I am? Sends him a messenger, okay, to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be stored, you'll be cleansed. Now, get this, because we're going to see this in a minute. So he makes this long journey, right, all the way down here with this dreaded disease of leprosy. The prophet doesn't even come out and meet him, sends him some messenger and says, go dip himself seven times in the Jordan River. Let's see what his response is. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry. I thought he would surely come out to me, not send a messenger, but come out to me, stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, and just like you see with the TV preachers, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. In other words, I was expecting something what? Dramatic. But he sends me a messenger and then go dip myself seven times in the Jordan River? you got to be kidding. Are not the Abana and the far parts, the rivers of Damascus, that's up north in Syria, Better than the waters of Israel. And he was right. The Jordan is not a particularly pretty river. But up in his home country of Damascus, he had beautiful spring, uh, springs and, and, and rivers up there. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? Why did I have to come all the way down here? So he turned away in a rage. 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be Cleanse. Now, already you're hearing overtones of baptism where I'm going this right. Okay. Well, he shouldn't be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times. Now, listen. 
as the man of God had told him, read promised him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Why was he cleansed of his leprosy? <coughs> Something special about the Jordan River? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in what? Faith in the promise that was given to the waters of the Jordan River. Now pretend with me, okay? Pretend with me so you get this down. Let's say he went back to Damascus and said, Golly gee whiz, you know that might work. And he dipped himself seven times in one of the rivers up in Damascus. Would he have been healed of his leprosy? Why not? The promise wasn't attached to the rivers of Damascus, right? Wouldn't have done him any good. Okay, let's say, let's say he stayed there. He went to the Jordan and he dipped himself not seven times, but three times, thinking that would be sufficient. Would he have been healed of his leprosy? Because that's not, that wasn't God's promise, was it? He didn't say three times. He said seven times. Okay, let's do it like this. Let's say he went down to the Jordan River and he dipped himself ten times just to make sure it worked. <laughs> Would he have been healed of his leprosy? Sure. No. No. No more goodies for you, bud. <laughs> because God didn't say dip yourself ten times. He said dip yourself Seven times. In other words, the power to heal him of his leprosy didn't come from the waters of the Jordan River. But God's word that was attached to the waters of the Jordan River, and I hope by now you can see how clearly this applies to the waters of baptism. Yeah, I know, it's just a little water, and we can get real real arrogant like he did, you know. What do you mean be baptized with a little water? What's that going to do? That's what Naaman said, right? When we use this water the way Jesus tells us to use this water, it does all these things. It's a matter of faith, believing what God tells us. Okay. Okay. Ooh, watching the clock here. All right. So uh, then let's go to uh, Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized, what? Shall be saved. So from this we learn, water of itself cannot perform such miracles. Ah, but the water of the word of God, which is connected with the water, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, places forgiveness, life, salvation, and all these blessings into baptism. And faith, which trusts this word, accepts the treasures and makes them arm. Let me give you an example. Remember a little while ago I said baptism and teaching always go together? Okay. Baptism and faith always go together. If you have faith in Jesus, you should be what? Baptized. If you're baptized, your baptism does you no good unless you have faith in Jesus. See how they go together? Now, that doesn't mean your baptism no, no good. It simply means if you don't believe it, you're not taking any benefit from your baptism, right? For example, let's say that I was baptized as an infant. I was raised in the church. I was Good church member, da 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 da. Went off to college like some kids do, and I lost my faith. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Listen to all these liberal professors talk about different things, and I just reject Jesus and the Christian faith. But I'm still baptized, right? But my baptism's not doing me any good because I've lost my faith. Now, let's say 10 years later, I'm blessed. I come into the presence of some Christians. They once again share God's word with me, and I'm brought back to faith. Now, here's my point. I don't get baptized again. 
Now, I'm already baptized. Okay? Now that I come back to faith, I just start believing in my baptism again. Because baptism didn't leave me. I left baptism. And I'm saying that because some well-meaning people, some well-meaning people get baptized time after time after time. They don't want to do that. Baptism is God's doing, not your doing. And to be baptized a second and a third time is saying it's your doing. No. If it's God's doing, he got it right. Right? You don't have to be rebaptized. Just believe it now. Now that you're back to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's very important. Okay, can anyone be saved without baptism? And the answer is yes, it's possible. Faith saves. Unbelief condemns. And so a believer like the thief on the cross who dies before or without baptism is what? Saved. Now, here's the point. You cannot be saved if you say you believe in Jesus and you despise baptism and refuse to be baptized. Something is profoundly wrong there. Either the person doesn't really have faith in Jesus, otherwise they want to be baptized, or they have faith in Jesus, but they are horribly, horribly not properly instructed in the Christian, in the Christian faith. Okay? So the thief on the cross, he died without baptism and was saved because he had faith in Jesus. He didn't despise baptism. He simply didn't have the opportunity to be baptized. But if by God's grace he had survived that crucifixion and three months later he was healed up, he would be baptized. Okay. So it's not the absence of baptism necessarily that uh, damns a person. It's the despising of baptism. Okay. Uh, the Bible says nothing about the fates of infants who die without baptism. We leave them in God's hands of love, comforting ourselves with the thought that while he himself has bound us to the use of means of grace, he has not bound himself. Needless to say, Christian parents will not unduly postpone the baptism of their children. And here's where I told you the story of my little Mark. Yeah. I baptized him before his surgery. If anything went wrong, I'd have the comfort because I'd be putting all my hope in God's promises. He's told me about baptism, right? And that's where I'd find my comfort if my little Mark had died in surgery or after surgery. This is very important. And we also know uh, children were circumcised at... Eight days. Now, there's no rule in the New Testament. There is no rule in the New Testament. It doesn't say. Okay? But basically, in most churches that baptize infants, we don't like to put it off too long. For example, when I went to visit one of our family members who just had a, a baby, we were talking about infant baptism, and they're looking at the Sunday that they want to get their child baptized. And they told me a sad story. They had some friends who uh, had a baby, and uh, they put the baptism off, put the baptism off, put the baptism off, and then the child died of SIDS. Sudden infant death syndrome. Don't plan on that. So generally speaking, there's no rule. There's no rule. But I'd say the average pastor starts getting nervous if we don't have a baptism in about a month. Why are you putting this off? You know. Uh, so that's very, very important. Okay, let's do number eight. This is very important. Baptism is practical. What I'm going to tell you right now, if you're baptized or if you're going to get baptized, now listen to how I say this, because most Christians don't do this. And I say with a heavy heart, most Lutherans probably don't do this. You should remember your baptism every day. And I'm going to tell you how to do that. Well, why should I remember my baptism every day? Well, what's good baptism if you never think about it? Well, have you been baptized? Oh, yeah, I think I've been baptized. What, what does that mean? Oh, I don't know, I've been baptized. Oh, that sounds real meaningful. 
What I'm going to show you by remembering our baptism, and when I say remembering our baptism, I don't remember the, I'm not saying the date of our baptism. That's irrelevant almost. When I say remember your baptism, I'm saying remember the promises of your baptism. Because what I'm going to show you is as we daily remember the promises of our baptism, we have daily comfort, as I'll show you. What's my daily comfort? I am a baptized, forgiven child of God. That's who I am. And what we're also going to learn in just a moment is baptism gives me power to live a Christian life because I'm united to death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in my baptism, as I'm going to show you. So by daily remembering, I have comfort. By daily remembering, I have power to live a Christian life. So let's get into that as we start wrapping up some of our last thoughts here. So eight, would you highlight daily use? What daily use should the Christian make of his baptism? Galatians 3, 26, 27, Paul says, You are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ Jesus, have been put, uh, put on Christ. This means that being a Christian and being baptized is far more important than being an American. Now, I'm very patriotic. I'm a veteran. I love this country. Okay? But it's not more important than the kingdom of God. It isn't the kingdom of God. And being American is not going to help you on your deathbed. But being a baptized, forgiven child of God, ah, and I say this because I'm fearful that Christians in general, even unconsciously, tend to put being American ahead of being Christian. Yeah. Okay, so this is a this is the comfort. I am a child of God, and then we see Isaiah 54, which is not about baptism, but that's okay. The thought certainly applies to baptism. It says the mountains may depart and the hills may be moved. Now, forgive me for being a little slangy, and I hope I don't offend anybody with my language. They saying even if the world's going to hell in a handbasket, that's what that's saying. Even the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay. My steadfast love shall not depart from you. That's what your baptism means. You are my child. I am your heavenly father. I adopted you in the waters of baptism. Shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Do you see the comfort? But you don't have any of that comfort, generally, if you don't remember your baptism. Now let's look at Romans uh, 6. And I want to do this uh, uh, a little bit more extensively. So would you look up Romans 6 in your Bibles? Okay. 6, I'm going to read 1 to 11. 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? Oh, you know, how many times the Christian faith is misunderstood, especially us Lutherans? What do you mean you're saved by only faith? Don't you have to do good works? Yeah, yeah. Well, what are you talking about then? See, even Paul. Paul had this problem. Because if you remember Romans at all, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, he's saying we're saved how? By faith and faith alone. So he's saying, okay, is there some smart aleck out there? So, oh, I see. So we can just live any way that we want. Is that what you're saying, Paul? You see, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And what does Paul say in verse 2? Of course not. By no means. That's not what I'm saying. We died to sin. Right? How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who what? what? Baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live what? And that means in this life, by the way, it means to live a new kind of life in this world as a child of God. Verse 5. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And he doesn't mean on the last day here, as I'm going to explain to you. Here's what I'm going to tell you. He's talking about being born again in baptism. 
So this is a spiritual resurrection. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body of sin might what? Be done away with. So Jesus died on the cross, not so we can enjoy our sins. (laughs) He died on the cross so that we might what? Fight against our sins, right? That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Remember, dead? Remember, if I have a dead body here, would you like a double short or a triple tall latte? Now, what we're going to see, if you're dead to sin, what's that going to mean then? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You see where I'm going to go with this? That means we're spiritually not responsive. So hang in there. I'll explain this. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him right now in this life. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11 is the punchline. This is where we're going to stop. In the same way... Count yourselves, consider yourselves, believe it that you are what? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Now, this is being born again, which is described elsewhere. Let me show you real quickly uh, what we're saying here. So, we've already talked about the daily comfort of baptism. I'm a baptized, forgiven child of God. Here we find power to live a Christian life. Because, really, our baptism is a time machine. We Lutherans take this language seriously. Something happens in baptism. Many things happen in baptism. But this says, in a way beyond our comprehension, we are actually united to what happened to Jesus in our baptism. Okay? So, certain things happened to Jesus that were physical. Right? In our baptism, something happened that was spiritual. Okay? What happened in in Romans chapter 6? Well, we said that Jesus was what? Crucified, right? Died, buried, and rose, correct? That all happened to him physically. Ah, but in Romans chapter 6, what happened spiritually? He says also something was crucified in our baptism. What was it? Anybody remember? It's it's one of the verses. Anybody get it? I shut my Bible. Now, we died with him. What died with him? There's a phrase used there. The old self died. Okay, What's the old self? The old sin-loving self. How, how are we born in this world? Want to live for who? Self. Ah, oh, but in baptism, that died. Who do we want to live for now? Christ. See, So the old man died or was crucified. Crucified died and was buried, the old man. Now, why do you suppose that includes the word buried? Why didn't he just stop at died? It's just kind of a common sense answer. It's not, it's not a trick question. Why would he say died and buried? That's right. If you're buried, you're dead. You know, no chance you're going to come back now. Okay, so that's why he emphasized dead. So that's what happened here. And then he physically rose. What was raised up in our baptism? Here's the old man. What do you think was raised up in baptism? The new man. The new man. Okay. And verse 11. Now, what this is, these are the facts of your baptism. Promised you in God's what? God's word. Okay. Whether you understand this all or not, this is what he says in his word. Okay. And verse 11 says, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin, that means you're not responsive to sin, but alive to who? Okay, now here's the point, and then I'll move on. 
because we can review this next week. It means in baptism, our old sin-loving self has died and our new man in Christ has been raised, which means we don't want to live for ourselves. We want to live for God. For example, if I had a room full of Christians, okay, and I said, okay, all you Christians here, how many Christians here want to willfully, purposely, and consistently sin against God? Raise your hand. Well, nobody's going to raise their hand. Well, how many Christians here, and I know you don't do it perfectly, I don't do it perfectly either, that's why we live under God's grace and forgiveness. But how many Christians here want to live for God? Raise your hand. Well, all the hands go up, right? This is why. Now, okay, now how do you use this information? Well, just like you use everything, it's by faith. When In verse 11, when Paul says, here's the facts of your, 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 your baptism, now consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, he's simply saying, it's another way of saying, believe this. This is my promise. So how do you use this power then? What well, goes like this? I'm running out of space here. But let's say, here's a temptation, okay? T, temptation. A temptation starts out and it always grows what? Stronger, doesn't it? And what Paul is saying, no, wait a minute. When you're in the middle of a temptation, remember your baptism, that you've been united to the death and resurrection of Christ. Your old man has died. Your new man has been raised up. Okay, and here's the point. You not only don't want to do this, here's the point. You don't have to do this. Now, that's a matter of what? Faith. And if you remember that and believe that, what always happens, the temptation always peaks, and then what happens to the temptation eventually? goes away. And if we will use faith in our baptism, we can resist the temptation. Eventually the temptation will pass and we will have avoided that, that sin. Now I realize, and we could talk about this maybe next week in the review. I know sometimes that's much easier said than done. Believe me, I've been in the spiritual trenches too. But that's the power of our baptism. But how are we going to use this power if we don't know about it and we never remember our baptism? So we have in our baptism comfort, forgiven child of God, and power to live a Christian life, which I'll pursue a little bit more next week. Okay, let's, uh, let's do the, we're almost done. Let's do it at the bottom of the page from this we learn. I'm baptized. This should be the Christian's daily comfort. God is my father. I'm his child. Come what will, sin, sickness, sorrow, death. Nothing can separate me from his steadfast love in Christ my Savior. Turn the page, please. This is also the Christian's daily incentive. I am God's child. Now let me live up to my high name and station, striving in all things out of sheer love to do my father's will. And I'm not going to read all that about uh, the sponsors because I already said that just a little bit. So to save time, I'm not going to do that. So the last thing I'm going to do, and I'll be able to do it really quickly, I want to take about, talk about making the sign of the cross. First of all, let me say, you don't have to make the sign of the cross. It's not in the Bible. But a couple of things I do want to say about why I want you to consider making the sign of the cross. First of all, this is a very ancient custom. It really chaps me. Sorry about my slang. <laughs> It really chaps me when we let the Roman Catholics have this practice. Why is it only the Roman Catholics get to do this? Okay, now here's, here's the setup for this. Making of the sign of the cross is not one of those objectionable teachings that develop in that period from 500 to 1,000, like purgatory and pope and Mary and all. No. We can trace making the sign of the cross back to at least 180. Now, the only difference that we know at 180, they made the sign of the cross on the forehead. And probably the reason for that you can still see in many baptismal ceremonies. Say, Michael, if you're going to get baptized Sunday, at one time I come to you and say, receive the sign of the cross upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one 
redeemed by the Christ crucified. But notice how he did on the forehead? That's maybe how it got started then on the forehead. Somewhere around the 4th or 5th century, then we got the big, the big cross. And I'm not sure about the history, how that all developed. But the sign of the cross has been around at least since 180. Okay, remember, Jesus died in 30. That's 150 years. And if it's already mentioned in 180, it's already been, been around. So it's a very ancient custom. Secondly, if you're a Lutheran and you know your Lutheran faith, Lutherans have always encouraged to make the sign of the cross, even if their pastor didn't teach them that properly. And the simplest way to see that's right in the small catechism with Martin Luther about morning and evening prayers. He said, the first thing you do in the morning, get up, make the sign of the cross, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Say the Lord's Prayer and the Creed and go off merrily to work. Or when you go to bed at night, say, make the sign of the cross. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, say the Lord's Prayer and the Creed and go peacefully to sleep. Okay? So uh, many, many Lutherans make the sign of the cross, but not all do. In this church, we do make the sign of the cross, but not everybody. And those who make the sign of the cross don't look down on those who don't. Like, How come you're not making the sign of the cross? And those who don't make the sign of the cross don't say, Michael, Michael, why are you actually acting like a Catholic? This is the Lutheran church. None of that happens here. Because it's up to you what you do with this. So why would you make the sign of the cross? One important reason, and one really only, to remember your baptismal promises. That's the reason to make the sign of the cross. Now, if you can remember your baptism as promises in a different way, more power to you. But that's the historical development Behind, Because what, what words were spoken over you in your baptism? I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is to remember your baptism and its promises. So real quickly, and then I'm almost done. We can review this uh, if we need to. Uh, so you make in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter which shoulder you begin with. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, I think they start with the right shoulder. In the West, we start with the left. It doesn't matter. It's not in the Bible. So you just start at the forehead, go to the chest. I go to the left and the right and back to the chest. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And this, I'm going to tell you what I say. You don't have to say this, but you can think about it. Every morning and evening I make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is what I say as I'm sitting on the edge of the bed. I am a baptized, forgiven child of God, united to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His victory is my victory. That's how I start every day, and that's how I end every day. Because those are my, God's promises to me in my baptism. So uh, that's what this Kids in the Divine Service is all about. You can kind of look at that. And uh, we can maybe do some more during the review. I don't want to keep you much later there. Steve, very quickly, and then I have to let everybody go. Yeah, I know that. I think that was a lot of improvements to, you know, Catholic children. And uh, even that makes sense for us when we pass the Catholic Church. Yeah. Now, see, this is the, sometimes the reason some Protestants or Lutherans reject the sign of the cross is because in the history of the church, the sign of the cross has been abused and misused in very superstitious ways. And, of course, we wouldn't support that. But just because it's been abused, right? Like if somebody stole your car and, 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 and did something bad in the car, there's nothing wrong with the car, right? Well, nothing wrong with making the sign of the cross just because people use it in a bad way. But if we use it to remember our baptism, that's, that's godly and biblical. This concludes our lesson for this week. I encourage you to fill out the review worksheet on page 46. Next week, our lesson will be number 11, entitled, The Lord's Supper. Now let's conclude with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for blessing us with your holy word giving us your truth and your love as it's been revealed in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. 
Bless us now in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so there you go. There's the teaching. Now, if you disagree, go back to your notes, walk through the biblical passages, understanding that the clear passages govern. And we'll go from there. All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard of in this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, not tomorrow, Monday, until Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.